calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www. Dot pocket and pendant dot com. Seven Jadith. It was some time before Casey and Ian could bring themselves to approach Max. After dropping the diary, Max had whooshed off with tears in his eyes across the flatlands of the farm to a thin gully half a mile away, still well within sight, but far enough away that he could be alone and not have to talk to anyone. Casey was visibly shaken up after the encounter with Johnny Siren. Ian could see that there was something about Siren that terrified her, deep to the very core of her being. She too was withdrawn, and she sat on the ground outside the house, crying softly into one sleeve. Ian went back inside the house, looking for any additional clues to Max's past, while Casey and Max screwed their heads back on, as he put it. After an hour or so, Ian hadn't found much more than a couple of additional pictures with Max in them, and he was getting itchy. He had a strong suspicion that it was dangerous to remain at the farm. The UFOs might come back. And Casey started to worry about Max after a time, so it was she who broke the silence. Ian, she said, what do you suppose Max is thinking down there? Well, you read the diary, Ian answered. He just found out he's probably an alien. It's his people that created the pocket and who are flying around in UFOs or... Uh, what was it they called them? Sky chambers. And who up to no good of one sort or another. But just because Max is related to them doesn't make him bad also, right? Casey asked in a meek, guilty voice, as if this question held meaning for her as well. Ian regarded her curiously for a moment and then said... Well, no, of course not. He's still Max, no matter who his parents are. Even if they're bad people, or, well, even if they're aliens, that's not his fault. Casey breathed a sigh of relief, as though she felt better about something herself. Well, we should go down and talk to him, she said. He's been stewing down there long enough. We should go tell him what you just told me. Yeah, you're right, Case. We should, Ian replied, and the two of them took a short whoosh down to the gully. 
Max heard them approach, but didn't turn around. He just kept staring across the gully, throwing little stones into the stream. They bounced pointlessly off the murky, black, time-frozen surface before lazily stopping in the temporal molasses of the pocket. Some halted in midair, others in tall grass near a half-rotten wooden plank that stretched from one side of the gully to the other. I used to know who I was, Max croaked suddenly. I was just this, this stupid little kid who had to punch himself in the head to get on the bus to go to school. Now, I have no idea who I am. But the more I find out, the more really and truly scared I am. But Casey wasn't having any of this. I know who you are, even if you don't. You're Max, a boy with a good heart who... But Max cut her off, spinning and yelling wildly now. No! No, you don't! That's just the point! Nobody knows who I really am. Not you, not me, not anybody! Casey was completely startled by this reaction. Her head snapped back as though some physical force had popped her in the nose. The blood drained out of her face, and she took an involuntary step backwards, as if she might whoosh away at any moment. Max looked up, clearly feeling guilty for barking. He took a moment to collect himself, and then went on. Well, that's not totally true. These people who were my, my foster parents, they apparently knew me. But they ended up scared to death of me. You read the diary. They were afraid for their very lives in the end. What in the world did I do to scare them like that? I mean, what am I? They just didn't understand you, Ian was saying quietly. They were scared because you were a child who didn't ever grow up. And that would scare any parent. That's only human. But Max would not be consoled. Ha! Only human. Like I would even know what that feels like. You said it yourself. I can't be human. It looks like I've been around for at least a hundred years. Which means, even though I look like a human little boy, I'm not, not, not! Look at me! I'm probably not even really named Max Quick! Max was panting and his eyes were wild now as he finished. I'm one of them. I have to be. I'm an alien, like Johnny Siren. In fact, for all I know, he's my real father. Casey looked startled for a moment and then shook her head and said, No, no, he's not, quietly under her breath. Max put his hands up to the sides of his head like it was going to explode. I don't understand. Why can't I remember? Is this even real? Ian thought for a moment and then said, Maybe, maybe there was some kind of accident, and you got hit on the head or something, and you got left behind. And the aliens, your people, they lost track of you. Max's eyes bulged for a moment as a terrible thought struck him. Oh no, what if it's actually me they're trying to find? What if I'm this, this thing they're looking so hard for everywhere? Max and Ian locked eyes for a moment. Ah, that could be it, Ian nodded, thinking out loud. We know they're searching for something. Maybe they figure if they freeze time, you'll stick out like a sore thumb, because you'll be the only person moving around and therefore easy to spot. They just didn't count on some of us human children being unstuck as well. Oh, it would make sense. Wicked! Maybe it is you they're looking for. Max stood up and whizzed another stone into the gully. But why now? After a hundred years? I mean, what took them so long? Max asked. Maybe it took them that long to notice you were missing, Ian said with a half-smile and a twinkle in his eye. Max even managed a wry smile back. Well, maybe, Ian continued serious again, maybe they visit lots of planets or something, and they didn't know which one they left you on, and they just figured it out. 
I mean, really, there could be lots of reasons for why now and not sooner. Max paced for a moment. There could be another explanation, you know. And he looked down in pain, as though this one hurt even more than the others. It could be like what my foster mom wrote. They could have planted me here, on Earth, intentionally. I could be like kind of a sleeper cell, waiting to be activated by my people. Like a post-hypnotic suggestion. It might be just a word, a command, or something that brings my memory flooding back. And then I'm supposed to do something. Something evil. Casey was shaking her head so hard, her blonde curls bounced like springy springs. No, Max, that can't be right. I don't believe it. Remember the woman in the bookstore you told me about? Petunia? Did she say that you were braver than you thought, and that a lot of people owed you their lives, including her? Max shook his head. I'll be honest. I felt like I tricked Petunia. I don't deserve any of those things she said about me. I felt like a total fake when she was saying them to me. Just like I feel like I'm tricking you right now. You think I'm nice. You think I'm brave. But even my foster parents love me, at first. But when the right moment comes, something will happen, and I'll remember who I really am and what I'm supposed to do. And then I'll do it, and it'll be something terrible. But both Casey and Ian were emphatically shaking their heads. No, Ian said. I seriously don't think so. I think your foster parents just got scared when you didn't grow up, and they didn't know what to make of it, that's all. And now you read that diary, and suddenly you're all spooked by something you don't understand. Yeah, Casey continued. And another thing, Max, you're just not that kind of person. I know. You just don't have it in you. Some people are born mean, but you... And she stopped for a second and looked very sad, but suddenly a new thought seemed to cross her mind, and she said, Hey, wait a minute. Her eyes suddenly turned to slits. So that's why you had a black eye. You lied to me. Max was suddenly pulled out of his dark thoughts. What? When we first met, I asked you about your eye, and you said some kid hit me. But just now you said you had to punch yourself in the head to get on the bus. Max stared at her for a second and then said sheepishly, Er, yeah, that's true. Casey squinted her eyes up like she was mad at him for lying, but really she wasn't. Ian nodded at him and then said, So, let's review for a moment, shall we? You have to punch yourself in the head just to get on the school bus, and here you are, actually scared that you're the super alien secret double agent kid. Ian cocked an eyebrow. Max just looked at him. You're right. Sounds pretty ridiculous. The trio gave kind of a collective sigh and kind of stood in a circle for a moment, and then Max asked, So what do you think happened? I mean, to Hess and Romy Bloom. Ian cast a glance back at the house, sitting alone in the Texas plane. Well, something happened in 1963. That's pretty clear from the dates in the newspapers and magazines, as well as the fact that nobody's been in that house since then. Well, at least until today. So, Hess and Romy either left on their own, or they were taken away, and really have no way of knowing which. But as for you, Max, I think you left on your own, just like the diary said. I think you tried to go to New York, to look for Mr. E. Do you think Mr. E is another alien like Max? Casey asked Ian. Ian nodded. Yeah, that's my guess. Back in 1963, Max seemed to think Mr. E could help him, and the only person who could do that would have to have been an alien. If Max himself is near a hundred and doesn't look a day over twelve, then his people will live a very, very long time. Max sighed. 
So, did I make it? Did I find Mr. E in New York? Ian shrugged. No way to know for sure. My guess is no, though. Why? Casey asked. Because nothing seems to have happened. Max still can't remember anything. And after he tried, he mysteriously ended up on the total opposite coast from New York, in the Stalin home for boys. And that hex or whatever that was that threw Max out of the house was meant to keep him from coming back here. Something went wrong. The mission failed. And somebody tried to cover it up. So what now? Casey asked. We go to New York, Max answered, straightening his shirt out. That's where Johnny Siren and the Sky Chambers went. And I'll bet you anything that's where the heart of the pocket is. And that's where this Mr. E supposedly is. Everything points to New York. Ian and Casey looked white as ghosts. I don't think that's a good idea, Casey whispered. Why? Max asked. Well, what are we going to do when we get there? We're going to sneak around, spy, see what we can find out, see what Siren is up to, if we can find Mr. E. I think we should hide, Casey whispered. Yeah, why would we march right into the middle of where they all are? Ian chimed in. Max shook his head. No, we can't. Or I can't. Max sighed. Ian, you said you thought we were an accident. You know, the fact that we were unglued from the pocket. That they didn't know about us. Ian nodded. That means we're the only ones who might be able to do something about the pocket. Get things back to normal. And New York is a huge place. And we can whoosh. And they don't even know about us. Why, we can hide just by standing still in broad daylight. They'll think we're time frozen for crying out loud. We have a lot of advantages. So, we have to go to New York. Or I do. You two can do whatever you want. Ian and Casey looked at each other. Ian looked at Max sheepishly and then said, Oh, bloody right. I'm coming, he said. I mean, after all, I've always thought we should find out more. But I don't think we should do more than spy for now. And we keep hidden. It's going to be scary and dangerous. Max nodded. Okay. Casey nodded until her springy curls bounced. Well, then I'm coming too. But... We only spy for now, like Ian says. Max nodded again. All right, he said, and his eyes drifted back towards the house again. Something suddenly made his eyes water up, and a tear flowed down his cheeks before he realized what was happening. I'm sorry, Max said, his voice suddenly croaking. I, I don't know why. I just I feel so terrible for whatever happened to them. Because it was my fault. Whatever the bad thing was that happened, it wouldn't have. If it wasn't for me. Casey put her hand on his arm. But Max, this wasn't your fault. You didn't do it. And look at all the good things that happened to other people because of you. Like Petunia. She told you her whole life was good because of you. And, and honestly, good things have happened to me because of you. I don't know where I'd be if you hadn't come for me. The entire next week was fairly uneventful. They simply traveled and made good progress. The trio whooshed along the freeway breakdown lane to avoid the time-stopped cars for eight or nine hours at a stretch, and then typically pulled off for some food at a 24-7 or regal roast, and then got some sleep. Casey whined a lot about there not being many holistic natural foods markets along the way. Ian remarked that there weren't many of them outside of California, and they had probably skipped over the last bunch when they traveled via book from California to Texas. 
Yet the company was lucky in that plenty of hot meals were readily available everywhere they turned. They had only to pluck freshly prepared Regal Roast Double Deluxes off a serving tray or from behind the counter and heat them up time-wise, and they were perfectly preserved in their steaming hot state, courtesy of the pocket. Max felt very weird about this at first, taking food right off some guy's plate, a guy who was actually right there in front of him, frozen in time, and expecting to eat it himself. But Ian insisted that it was simply a question of their survival, and it was therefore okay. And besides, all this was old hat to Ian. The serpents and mermaids had actually done this so many times that they had completely plundered their own town and the surrounding towns of nearly all hot food available at the moment of the time stop. Only very rarely did the serps now discover some new bit of hot food nearby that they had missed, and this was almost always in a family's home. They had been lucky that it had been 3.38 p.m. when the pocket hit, meaning dinner in many homes was just starting to be prepared. And usually, it was no trouble at all finding an empty motel room with comfortable beds whenever they needed to sleep. Of course, they had to find a motel that didn't use card swipe electronic locks on the doors, as those wouldn't operate in the pocket, being electrical. But in this area of the country, there were plenty of places still using mechanical locks, rooms for which it was easy to swipe the keys from the front desk. On the third day of their travels, Ian said over lunch, You know, when I first came to California from England, I used to warn to my dad that I missed the seasons, especially around Christmas. There needs to be some snow on the ground for Christmas. And nothing beats a crisp fall day. Nothing at all. But now, it's even worse. Now I miss mornings and evenings, the sun rising and setting. For a whole bloody year, it's just been eclipse o'clock. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Me too, said Casey. I was just thinking that yesterday. Or, or whenever. See, I don't even know, and I hate that. Me three, agreed Max. I do miss England, though, said Ian. My dad takes, well, used to take, me on lots of business trips with him. We've been to New York a whole bunch of times, so when we get there, don't worry. I know my way around. Anyway, we're only supposed to be in California for a week and then we're going back to England for a couple months at least. Ha! But it's been a whole year now, hasn't it? Another four days passed in much the same way. But as they got closer, they were suddenly more wary of the skies, expecting sky chambers or unexplained lights to appear out of nowhere and abduct them. But they saw none, and none accosted them. If they were there, they were keeping well out of sight. And ever since the children had begun their final sweep up the East Coast, the states were physically smaller and thus began to whiz by every several hours. Virginia. Maryland. New Jersey. And then, sooner than they had dared hope, New York. The traffic became suddenly and noticeably thicker. The freeways more clogged. Ian knew the way into the city from JFK Airport, so they began following the signs pointing them towards JFK. Upon finding it, Ian led the charge the rest of the way in. The buildings of the city suddenly loomed on the horizon like a crowd of men hairs under a dark sky, the air muggy and turgid with heat and pollution. New York City, the center of the earth, the crossroads of the modern age. If the world has a capital city, New York is it in every way that matters. Gleaming, shining buildings reach into the sky like modern obelisks. The United Nations building stands like a black slab of obsidian on the shores of the river. 
The Chrysler building gleams encased in a silver shining suit of armor, magnificent in its art deco quirkiness. The Flatiron building, a wedge of gnarled white-gray marble, classic, bizarre, slicing into the same fork in Broadway that has been there for a hundred years. No pyramid, no ancient city, no temple of the ages past, not even the city of Rome at the height of the empire rivaled the supreme grandeur of New York, the city of the ages, with the past, present, and future fused into one, where the spirit of mankind dwelt in unparalleled supremacy in its accomplishments and hopes for the future. But now, in this, the greatest of cities, something was amiss. Something was terribly astray. Not only were hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers still as statues in the streets, not only were countless cars time-frozen to the grid of roads and helicopters unmoving in the air and subway trains stuck to the tracks far underground, but now a new enemy was stirring in the midst of the city. A new menace had arisen in a place wholly unlooked for in the history of mankind, between the ticks of the clock. Now sky chambers freely roamed the low skies in droves like glowing hornets, unchallenged, unopposed, buzzing between the stark monolithic towers of glass and steel. Now armies clad in gold armor went to and fro, hither and thither amidst the teeming time-frozen masses, the sound of thousands of jackboots crunching against the pavement and sidewalks the only thing now heard in the city. Now a massive mothership, perched like a great wheel of fire, a self-contained city of light in itself in the middle of Central Park. Awesome and menacing, full of might and the promise of slavery for all mankind, it loomed sinister against the backdrop of the Statue of Liberty that stood defiantly in the distance. And now, overhead, the eclipse was finally in full bloom. The sun was completely blotted out by the moon, leaving a ring of fire arced around a midnight black disk like a hole in the sky. And between the cars in the Midtown Tunnel, frozen in rush hour traffic, with their inhabitants frozen in mid-glare, mid-curse, and mid-hand gesture, three lone small figures threaded their way between the cars, doing their best to remain unseen. When the trio emerged in Midtown Manhattan, it was Ian who took charge, having some familiarity with the layout of the city thanks to his travels with his father. The three of them whooshed very carefully, going just a city block at a time, peering around the corners of buildings at each intersection to see if anyone or anything was moving before continuing up to the next block. Ian led them up a cross street towards Six, which he knew they would intersect after 20 blocks or so. It was very, very strange to Ian to see New York citizens also still and unmoving, this in a city that was all about motion. It was somehow easy to accept the notion of the sleepy towns of California falling under the spell of the time stop. Most of them seemed halfway there already. But it had seemed that New York should somehow have been immune. There was simply too much going on to stop. But now, Ian felt the terrible truth in his bones as he was confronted with the stark reality. And from what they had seen so far, it was more than that. New York seemed to be the epicenter, somehow the very origin of the pocket itself. A couple of times they had to wait at the corner as a sky chamber drifted slowly between the buildings in the distance, like a zeppelin of light, eyeing the unmoving masses below, and once satisfied nothing was out of place, floated on beyond the unending rows of buildings and out of sight. But before long, they had turned right on 6th, 
and they were whooshing their way past the News Corp building, past Radio City Music Hall, past the Time building, and soon they were across the street and into Central Park itself. They entered the park from the south. As they boosted onto the twisting blacktop pathways under the trees, they soon found themselves descending a stone staircase and entering a tunnel running underneath a roadway. It opened up into a spacious 18th century plaza with a large round fountain adorned with stone angels as its centerpiece. Water hung suspended in mid-gush from the topmost angel. People were everywhere, frozen as they strained to catch a glimpse of the eclipse in the sky with pans of water, pinhole cameras, and video cameras. Bethesda Terrace, Ian read aloud from a sign near the tunnel. The carved stone architecture of the entire area was discolored and brown with time. Very nice, Casey remarked, whooshing out across the stonework and onto the small paddleboat pond just beyond. I like this place. She skipped along the surface of the time-stopped water, suddenly delighting in the novelty of being able to do so. Suddenly she heard Max hiss. Casey, don't move. Pretend to be frozen like everyone else. Quick. Casey turned around and saw Max and Ian standing completely silent, completely still. She was about to ask, Why? When suddenly she heard a man's voice bark. Mart! Muftet! Ament! Bring them here! Casey froze in her tracks. Another voice answered. Nephthys has the rest, but these are the ones Lord Sargon discovered. They are the children of the black-headed people who were found unaffected by the Umphalos. I know not by what sorcery they remain so, but no matter, we shall discover it. Three tall figures emerged from the shadows under the tunnel and onto Bethesda Terrace. They were dressed in what appeared to be ornate gold armor with an extremely reflective surface that sparkled brilliantly. They appeared almost like androids. Their armor seemed to hug their bodies like metal fabric, simultaneously lightweight, pliant, and snug, and yet looking hard and as impenetrable as diamond plating. Max and Ian stood mere steps away from these men. Max was sweating already as he strained to stay absolutely still and tried not to breathe visibly. But the figures in gold didn't even look their way. Apparently, they were used to people everywhere remaining still as mannequins. Instead, their attention was focused on the tunnel. Sounds of clinking chains, uncontrollable sobbing, and footsteps echoed in the darkness. And then, a small army of children emerged from the tunnel, shuffling along miserably, chained together at the wrists. Suddenly, Max recognized one of them, Sasha Foy. Her hair was a tangled mess, and her eyes were puffy, and her cheeks were red and raw from crying. And then he saw Ace behind her, his trench coat now in tatters and torn, his shoulders slumped and hunched and defeated, and his eyes downcast. No longer was he the proud and haughty boy they had known. In his place was a crushed shell, a mere shadow of his former self. With a start, Max realized, these kids were all serpents and mermaids. Ian had been right, after all. A sky chamber must have finally spotted them. Max snuck a flick of an eye at Ian. His eyes were wide, fully aware of how narrowly he himself had escaped this very fate. Then Max risked flicking a glance at Casey. She had seen Sasha, who was now smirking ever so slightly to herself. But then... Max noticed that Casey was clearly standing on water in the middle of the paddleboat pond. He and Ian looked much like everyone else on the terrace, and were therefore not noticed. 
but no one could have been standing nonchalantly on the pond's surface when the pocket hit. If one of these guys noticed... Suddenly, another man appeared among them, seemingly out of nowhere, arriving in a blur. He was now conversing with the group, pointing to the children and then deeper into the park towards the north. With a start, Max realized that the man had just whooshed up to the group. This was a full-grown man who had done this. Of course grown-ups could whoosh, Max kicked himself. If they can move in the pocket like we can, it makes perfect sense they can whoosh like we can also. It had just been startling to see a grown-up do it, as Max had just kind of mentally assumed that they, as kids, could simply whoosh away from any larger, bigger, stronger grown-up that they happened to encounter. And now, he was suddenly aware that they were in a lot more danger than he had anticipated. Then, the one called Mothet turned and addressed the children. Slaves have thine fathers and mothers ever been to us, and slaves shalt thou be again. This I swear by the name of Jadith. Then he pulled the chain and barked something which made them all groan. Together, Mothet and the chain 200-odd serpents and mermaids whooshed into the heart of Central Park were suddenly gone in a giant preternatural blur. A trail of fire burned on the terrace for a few moments where they all had just been, and then went out. The three other figures loitered for a moment, surveying the scene. Satisfied, two of them whooshed after Moffdet and the children. But one remained and seemed to sense something was amiss. Max held his breath. The man took a few steps towards the tunnel, and then seemed to figure out what was bothering him, and whirled towards the pond. He fixed his gaze directly on Casey. Max winced involuntarily. But then, the man seemed to laugh to himself, and a moment later, he whooshed after the others and was gone. Max sighed and looked towards Casey. She had somehow managed to reposition herself. She was now standing in a paddle boat. She must have made the switch when the man's back was turned. The man figured she had been standing there the whole time. <sighs> that was close, Casey breathed, coming to life now. Yeah, that was almost pretty sarcastic. Max observed. Oh boy, the saps have finally gone and stepped right in it, Ian whispered. Max nodded. We're going to have to be careful. They can all whoosh like us. Yeah, notice that, Ian said, looking a little paler than usual. So what are we going to do? I thought we were here to find Mr. E, Casey asked, looking at Max. Yeah, well, we are. He is here. He's watching all this from somewhere, hidden, just like we are. How do you know that? Ian asked. No idea. I just do, Max answered, shrugging. We have to find out what that slaves ever have thine fathers and mothers been stuff was all about. Ian was quiet for a moment, staring at the ground, clearly debating about whether to bring something up or not. Max watched him do this for a second and then said, What? I really hate to ask this, Ian said. But how do you know that my real personality... The alien one I can't remember isn't just manipulating me from deep inside my mind, betraying us and leading us into a trap? Max sighed. I don't. You know I don't. There's no way I can know for sure. I can't even trust myself. Ian and Casey both nodded. There was nothing else he could say. Together, the trio whooshed deeper into Central Park, zipping between the bushes and trees to stay undercover as they got closer and closer to the mothership. Without warning, the terrain became far more wild and thick. The paths turned to dirt and twisted and turned up rock faces through deep patches of trees. 
Casey noticed a sign describing this area of the park. The Ramble, she read. It says it's a nature preserve. Whatever it's called, it's great cover for us, Ian said. He was right. The Ramble was a maze of crisscrossing paths running through a dense thicket of underbrush. And it was a good thing, for as they closed in, more and more centurions whooshed by, to the left and to the right, like dark angels dispatched on terrible errands. As they neared the far edge of the ramble, the sight that greeted them took their breath away. There, on the oval of the great lawn of Central Park, was a monstrous sky chamber. It was the mothership, without a doubt. It was a mountain of jewels and light. It didn't look at all like technology. There was nothing electronic or metal or plastic looking. Instead, the material appeared to be more like sleek obsidian, shined marble, and light-gushing rubies, sapphires, and emeralds. Shafts of brilliant, piercing light that seemed too strong for mortal flesh to endure soaked the atmosphere near the craft. The smell of ozone drenched the air, and it felt charged with static electricity like just before a thunderstorm. Other smaller craft drifted lazily around the mothership like bees around the hive. Several other sky chambers of lesser stature were also parked all over the Great Lawn in various places. And then Casey suddenly pointed up to the sky and asked, What's that? Max and Ian peered up. There was a great boiling cloud like a thunderhead, but churning very fast directly over the Great Lawn. The cloud dropped altitude, flashing full of turbulence and heat blotting out the sky and something fell out of the bottom of the cloud. At first, Max thought it was just another sky chamber, but this had the appearance of something very different. It appeared to be a flying golden bell, like a glowing Christmas tree ornament. It tumbled and bobbed like a fairy, leaving a golden tinsel-like trail behind it. The golden bell descended and appeared to head right at them. For a moment, the trio felt a gush of fear lick their stomachs. This thing had spotted them. Max, Ian, and Casey tried to make themselves as small as possible and hid their faces, trembling as the ground shook at its approach. But then, it simply passed overhead, uneventfully. Max raised his head and caught a glimpse of the object as it passed. Through the intense light, Max thought he could make out sculpted creatures with faces like lions carved into the sides of the craft like ornamentation. These faces each had jewels set into them, each one ablaze, dazzling sapphires, rubies and amethysts sapphire. It hovered for a moment and then landed in front of the mothership. The jewels purred gently as the ship came to rest and then throbbed evenly like they were breathing. A round doorway opened in the golden bell and several figures emerged. First came a guard detail, dressed in the same style of extremely reflective golden armor they had seen earlier. But this group also wore golden helmets with faceplates. Some of them had jewels of deep blood red woven into this hair, or wore a jeweled arm bracelet clasped around a bicep. When twenty or so of these centurions had formed a protective circle on the Great Lawn, a striking tall woman appeared in the doorway. She was harshly beautiful, with dark, lustrous hair. Her eyes were like midnight, swimming in ink and heartless, like shark eyes, but said that she missed nothing. Her gaze pierced into everything it rested upon, ripping it apart one secret at a time. She wore bold, deep purple raiment with a high collar, an intricate floral design along the lapels all the way to her feet, and she wore several jewels that sparkled magnificently. She had an undeniable air of regality to her as she surveyed the park. 
As she glided towards the doorway, her head turned reflexively, and she looked at herself in the highly reflective surface of the passageway as though it were a mirror. Automatically, her lips pursed and her eyebrows arched, giving her an odd, almost clownish appearance of mild amusement or surprise. Then, clearly satisfied with her looks, she continued on. Max noticed Casey staring at this woman with rapt attention. And then, something startling happened. Just as the woman was about to emerge from the ship, three children in dirty tunics, wearing hopeless expressions on their faces, happened to be passing near the doorway of the ship. Suddenly, one of them muttered something under his breath like a joke, and it broke their glum mood for a moment, and the other two broke into giggling. The sound of their rare laughter, like clean, distilled joy, tinkled through the air for a brief instant, and then was gone. But it had been enough. The moment the woman heard laughter, her face changed, contorted with twisted, savage rage. And just for a split second, like a subliminal advertisement, her skin seemed to turn white and scaly, like a snake's, and her head seemed to morph into something like an iguana. Then she was a woman again, just like before. Did you see? Max blinked, unsure of what he had just witnessed. Now the woman came flying out of the ship, her eyes seething like wet black flames. How darest thou laugh? She howled at the children, who stopped dead in their tracks, filled with sudden terror. Animals! Laughing! It is an insult to thy gods. Thy dirty tongues and lips will bleed and sting like never before in thy lives, ere this day is ended. Centurions flew to her side as though she had been assaulted. She spoke with them in low tones, and her finger jabbed at the children as though they were obscenities. The children turned white with utter horror, looking now as though they were in fear for their very lives. The woman finished her tirade, and the centurions grabbed the trio and hauled them off as they begged and sobbed for mercy. But the woman just watched with grim satisfaction, as though she had just squashed a repulsive insect. Max, Casey, and Ian gave a collective shiver. Ian motioned for them to follow him along the edge of the ramble. We're too exposed here. Someone might see us. Let's get under some thicker cover. Over the next few minutes, they carefully picked their way to the right around the oval of the Great Lawn. Abruptly, they ran into a cul-de-sac in a hidden copse, enclosing a giant Egyptian obelisk. Incongruous and startling, the ancient gray stone finger lanced into the sky, every inch covered with hieroglyphs. Cleopatra's needle, Ian whispered. It's from ancient Egypt. My dad took me here once. Perfect, Max replied, referring to its virtues of hiding them. The trio slipped behind the obelisk and peeked around it periodically to spy on the woman and the centurions milling about on the lawn. As they watched, the head centurion approached the woman and said something in low tones. She nodded suddenly, and the centurion barked an order and the other centurions dispersed. Then the woman and the centurion began walking towards the obelisk. Hide, Ian hissed, and the three of them jumped into a particularly dense bush thicket near the cul-de-sac and waited. The woman and the centurion walked until they were directly in front of the obelisk. She was looking up at it with a smile on her face, as though it were a long-lost friend. Max couldn't believe their luck. They couldn't have been positioned better to spy on them. Maybe they would overhear something that explained the pocket, what Siren was up to, what was going on. The centurion removed his faceplate and helmet, 
revealing a square-jawed face that was ruggedly handsome. In fact, it should have been the face of a warrior or a king. But oddly enough, it wasn't. Instead, it was the forlorn face of a broken man. He was tense and annoyed. His gaze darted around self-consciously. In the space of a few seconds in her presence, his body language became that of impotence. This was clearly an old conversation he was about to have with her when they had had a thousand times before. The other centurions were carefully avoiding their commander's gaze, pretending to be looking elsewhere, but were all sneaking glances on the sly, trying to catch any nugget of amusement they could. For her part, the woman wore a look of polite patience, a look she seemed to enjoy wearing, as it elevated her to appearing to actually care and feel sorry for him, while simultaneously allowing her to be the center of attention while this man made a fool of himself. Jadith, the man began. What is this I hear of thee? Jadith smiled slightly. I do as I please. But I love thee. And I love thee. Thou art the love of my life. Thou knowest this. So why are we not together? Because thou cannot give me what I need. And here Jadith's face betrayed her for a moment. Jadith may have actually loved this man once was now clearly disgusted with his fawning, his weakness. If thou could only see, we have everything we need. This one, she said, indicating herself by tapping her own heart, needs more. I don't have everything I need. Thou art a centurion. Thou wilt always be a centurion. This one is the heir of Enlil. A queen am I. Max's eyes bulged suddenly with recognition and he whispered quietly to Ian and Casey. That's her. That's the woman Johnny Siren was speaking to in that crystal ball thing back in Starland. The daughter of Enlil, that's what she said then. Max, shut it, Ian hissed. I'm trying to hear what else she's saying to him. Jadith sighed and suddenly became colder and crueler in the blink of an eye. Go back to your men, she said. We will not speak of this further. The centurion was visibly stung and humiliated, but he nodded and replaced his helm and faceplate and headed back. Jadith remained, smiling to herself when she thought she was alone, clearly amused with the centurion's addiction to her. She fed off of it. But Casey, on the other hand, had watched this exchange as though it were a revelation. She had been utterly fascinated with the way Jadith had handled the centurion. This was a man who clearly should have been powerful in his own right. Yet instead, he had been utterly manipulated and broken by Jadith. What was it she had done to him? But now, another man approached Jadith. But this man was much older. He had the look of a senator or a functionary, someone wise, an advisor perhaps. He wore a flowing red robe, the shade of red exactly like the color of blood from a fresh cut, just like Johnny Siren's gloves. His robe had a hood that partially obscured his face which was round and cherubic like a monk's. One gnarled hand came out of a sleeve and gripped a tall, ornate gold staff. Jadith, the man croaked with a voice like boulders rubbing together. She turned. Philomen, she acknowledged him with a welcome smile, her voice gushing a gooey gratitude. It is so good to see thee, she said. They clasped hands for a moment, and then Jadith continued. Look, she chirped, inky serpentine eyes suddenly gazing up at Cleopatra's needle. 
Magnificent, isn't it? Philemon swept his measured gaze up the ancient monument. The obelisk sliced starkly into the air like a shout of stone. Yes, my queen, it is lovely. Of course, the black-headed ones don't fathom what it really means. They don't even know that we built that which they name the Great Pyramid. Nay, they do not even recall what purpose this obelisk in front of us was really meant to serve. And so, in their ignorance, they set it on end here. To them it's an oddity, a curiosity. Then she became coy, teasing. If they only knew what it really said, how it spoke of their own enslavement, I doubt they would give it such haughty display. Jadith laughed with a fake, life-is-a-party kind of grotesque chortle. I am sure you are right, Philemon muttered. Oh, and I cannot wait to enlighten them, Jadith crowed, dancing around. For they are a wretched half-breed race, meant only for slavery. Yes, my queen, Philemon repeated evenly, soothing her. Suddenly, Jadith sagged, a rapid mood switch. Ah, I come here to this place when I feel the weariness of a great task, Philemon. She almost sobbed. I love just to look at it, the obelisk, and remember what once was, and think of what could be, what will be, again. Which reminds me, any news of the pendant? Philemon nodded. Yes, there is some news. Jadith brightened visibly. Oh, tell me. With the Chrononomicon, Lord Siren has been able to walk between heartbeats and enter many locked rooms. He has been able to penetrate the secret places of the black-headed ones, undisturbed and unseen. Places they name the Pentagon, the Kremlin, the Vatican, the White House, places they deem important. Like so much of their history, these black-headed ones are entirely ignorant of the pendant. However, this is not altogether surprising, for Enlil did not permit his scribes to write of it. Nevertheless... We have found indirect references to the pendant in several ancient texts in their museums and archives. There are three Akkadian tablets which speak of it. There is a brief Egyptian account which mentions it in connection with a certain pyramid of the arches, which we cannot identify as of yet. And a Greek historian named Herodotus mentions it as a legend, and lastly, a Roman historian named Josephus speaks of it briefly. But the actual hiding place of the pendant eludes us. It was hidden with a supreme artistry, an enigmatic contrivance we do not comprehend. The betrayer himself seems to mock us from these accounts. In one of the fragments of writing we have, he is quoted as saying, Perfectly did I hide it. Men shall seek it, but they will not find it. They shall turn out the nations, in every hill and valley, and under every rock and stream. Yet it shall not be found. Even if I should reveal the exact spot where it is hidden, still they would find only air and dust. And in another, only when it is time for it to be found, can it be found. And even then, only those who are meant to find it, can find it. How such a thing could be achieved, we do not know. But the great betrayer was ingenious. And we do not doubt that this means something of import. Jadith was growing impatient as he spoke. She flipped her hair and untangled two tresses while he finished. So what does this mean? Are we close to finally getting it? This one grows tired of waiting. Five years, Philemon. Five years. 
Billamin spoke carefully and evenly now. But we are getting closer, my queen. We are now absolutely certain it is here, somewhere, hidden on Earth. Jadith made a snort of disgust. <sighs> Yet it seems the talking beast Lord Siren has not been able to uphold his end of the bargain. She hissed dangerously. He lured us here to this horrible little planet with the promise of six billion slaves. He made me, me, forge a pact with him. Him! He is just an animal, and he made me give my word and bond. Then her face contorted in rage, and for the first time looked very ugly and manic. He promised us dependent! He promised! We should burn him alive, break him! She was shaking, and her eyes were inkier now, twin bottomless pools, pinwheels whirling with madness. The transformation was nothing short of startling. Max suddenly felt sure that he was seeing the real Jadith now, this selfish, out-of-control person. This Jadith was festering, lurking just beneath the surface of the practiced, perfect, false exterior she presented to the outside world. If there had been things around to smash and break, Max felt certain Jadith would be breaking them by now. But Philemon only nodded slowly and averted his eyes. He had obviously seen these schizoid outbursts from Jadith before, and knew how to defuse them before they spun wildly out of control. When Philemon next spoke, it was with the even, honey-drop mellow tones of reason. Of calm, of quiet. Yes. Yes, he did promise. Siren has not yet delivered on his end of the bargain. However, he assures me that he is very near now to finding the hiding place of the pendant. He will not speak further of his methods, but he knows what is at stake for us and for him. He paused for a moment and then added cryptically, I have good reason to think he may yet deliver. A little more time, my queen. That is all I ask of thee. Jadith sighed and suddenly was calmer now, again shifting moods at the drop of a hat. Something about Philemon's tone of voice seemed to put her at ease. Oh, Philemon, dost thou believe we shall ever find it? She asked in a small voice, almost like a frightened child. It was yet another stark contrast to the proud, strong queen she presented to the centurions. Oh yes, my queen, we will find it. Oh, I hope so, Jadith said, her eyes blank again. A long time have we been looking, she mused. Long and long, and long again. In fact, our people are becoming dangerously infatuated with the black-headed ones in their ways. They are becoming corrupt, infantile, verily as the black-headed ones are. Philemon considered and then said, This is why our forefathers abandoned this world, if thou wilt remember. Our people were going native. They had even begun to choose wives from among the daughters of the black-headed ones. Only thy father, Enlil, was strong. Only he insisted that we remain apart from the black-headed ones. It is the natural order of things. They are slaves, and we the masters. Verily, they're gods. Yes, Jadith answered, now twirling her hair. And we shall reclaim our rightful place. Then we shall return to our own world with an army of six billion black-headed ones under our will through the pendant, and I will claim the throne that is rightfully mine. Jadith paused for a moment, 
then crinkled her nose and said with a genuinely concerned face that Max thought even Mr. Blister would have been proud of, And verily, it's what's best for them as well. They're a child race, sorely in need of a parent. Why, just look what they've done to this world. They've overrun this whole planet like a plague. There's so many of them now, everywhere. Six billion? That is astonishing. They breed so quickly and live such short, puny, pointless little lives. Yes, that is true. But they have also learned many secrets, far more quickly than even our kind did, Philemon answered carefully. Secrets they learned from our stolen blood, she snapped back at him. Anu, curse him, should have never let this happen. And as for the traitor, the great betrayer of his own kind. Ah, yes, him, Philemon sneered. The confounding of their language seems to have been only a temporary setback. We have arrived just in time. They are not yet united, and still bicker amongst themselves, land against land, king against king. Speak not of kingship among slaves, she snapped again. That is another bit of filth we will wipe clean. The lowering of kingship to the black-headed people, as though they were gods themselves, is another mockery that we will set aright. Philemon patiently continued. But they have discovered the fire inside the atom. They've unraveled the code of life, and they have primitive thinking machines. But they do not yet fathom the power of Omphalos, and as for riding the skies, they can barely travel to their own moon. He waited for his words to sink in, and then speaking low, Yet even so, although they cannot yet challenge us, it may not be long before they can. That, she spat, is perhaps the most significant reason we need to put a stop to them now. We are only doing the right thing. We are only preventing the inevitable. We have the right! If they are allowed to keep breeding, advancing, at this horrible, unnatural speed of theirs, why, how long will it be before they spread beyond their own world? Even unto our world. She stopped for a moment and then growled. No. The house of Enlil is not content. This one, she said, tapping her heart again, is not content. This must be stopped. Her upper lip quivered for a moment. And with that, Jadith whirled on one foot and began walking back with a fierceness, even a madness, in her stride. Philemon turned and followed wordlessly, smiling beautifully to himself. As soon as they were out of earshot, Max said, That's it. We're out of here. That woman is crazy. We have to figure out what we're going to do. Ian nodded in agreement. I'm with you. They carefully stood up and prepared to whoosh out of there, and they realized Casey was still staring at Jadith. Casey, Max hissed. Come on, we're leaving. Casey snapped out of it. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, okay, let's go. Max and Ian caught each other's eye. They were both thinking the same thing. What was wrong with Casey all of a sudden? Again, the trio had to be careful to avoid whooshing centurions as they made their way out of Central Park. They moved slowly, hiding in the trees and underbrush, zipping from one clump of brush to the next each time the coast was clear. Finally, they were back in the city streets of midtown Manhattan. 
With a little more careful whooshing down alleyways and in between buildings, they were twenty city blocks away from Central Park in a matter of minutes, and felt like they could talk a little more freely. This is nuts, Ian exploded when they arrived. What do you seriously think we're going to be able to do about that? I don't know, Max said, but we have to do something. I mean, we're the only ones who can, right? Everyone else is frozen. The serpents and mermaids are all caught and... Exactly, Ian snapped. We have to hide, Max. We can't do anything. We've got to hide and not get caught. Just like I told Ace. He didn't listen and look what happened to the subs. Where are we going to hide? Casey asked with a certain hopeless note in her voice. We can't hide anywhere that will actually work. Not from them. Not from her. Oh, and what was with you? Max spun and asked her hotly. You were watching Jadith like she was your new idol or something. That took Casey aback. She is not, Casey shouted back, tears gushing now. Why are you being mean to me all of a sudden? I'm not being mean, Max shouted back. I just want to know what that was all about, that's all. No, you're just being crazy, Ian muttered. What did you say? Max hissed. You heard me, Ian said, bristling. I mean, why don't you just go join up with them? Why are you even with us? After all, you're one of them. That got Max. He just stared at Ian like he was burning a hole through him. Casey was crying full steam now. And now we're all arguing. Why is this happening? She screeched and then whooshed off into the street full of time-frozen pedestrians. Oh, look what you've done now, Max said to Ian. What? It wasn't me. You were the one who asked all snotty-like about Jadith. Yeah, well, you were thinking it too. So what if I was? Max and Ian just stared at each other for a good minute. We have to go after her, Max said. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sorry, Max started. No, 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 it's, it's my fault, Ian finished. I, I'm just, I'm really scared. No, so am I. You think I'm not scared? I am. I'm just saying we have to do something, but I don't know what. But, okay, we have to hide first, I agree with that. Ian nodded. Okay. All right. They shook hands. Casey, they both said in unison and whooshed after her. When they found her several blocks away, Casey was eating a hot dog and crying all over it, giving it a taste of ketchup with salty teardrops. It had been difficult to locate her, as the streets in this part of the city were very crowded when the pocket had hit. People were out of their office buildings trying to view the eclipse using water pans, pinhole projectors, you name it. Casey, we're sorry, Max said, putting his hand on her shoulder. Ian and I made up. Yeah, we're really sorry, Ian said. We want to be friends again. Max was suddenly distracted for a second. There was something about a man in a suit time frozen near Casey. Did he just blink? No, he couldn't have. It was just nerves, Max thought. He had imagined it. He was being ridiculous. Ian was still talking. And we should hide. For now, anyway. This is just too dangerous here, out in the open. What with that ship and all the centurions and all nearby? Casey made a little sound of misery in between bites. Okay, she said finally. On impulse, Max gave her a hug. She seemed like she really needed one. Casey was stiff for a second, and then she grabbed onto him, letting out a good cry now. Oh, this is so scary now, Max. I don't know what we're going to do, she sobbed. I know, Max said. It's okay. But let's just hide and sleep and eat for now. Okay, said Casey, nodding into his shoulder. 
That's gonna be a lot harder than you think, said a voice, and Max felt a meat hook hand grab him by the neck, and his upper body was paralyzed, while his stomach turned to ice with fear. What was happening? The time-frozen man in the suit next to Casey suddenly came to life like a nightmare mannequin set free by magic. He moved. He grabbed Casey tightly by the throat and pulled her away from Max. These men were only pretending to be time-frozen, waiting for us to get close enough to grab us. Ian's eyes darted between the two large men, and seeing that he could not possibly win a fight with them and help Max and Casey right now, he made a decision. He pulled out a surf blade and took off down the street in a whoosh. Max's head was yanked back, and he found himself looking up into the face of the same man who had grabbed him by the neck back in Starland at the Museum of Antiquities. Ha <laughs> ha! Not happy to see me again, I'll bet! The man said, grinning viciously. Ian's gray whoosh blur hadn't gone for more than half a block when a gold whoosh blur suddenly intercepted it, coming from an adjoining block. They heard Ian cry out, and then the gold blur approached them and resolved into a leering centurion, with Ian struggling in a headlock under one arm and Ian's dagger neatly plucked from his hand in the other. Hot sparks showered from underneath the centurion's foot, and his golden boot made a metallic screeching noise as he came skillfully to a complete stop. The centurion was smiling nastily. Ha 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 Mr. Moffat, nice catch! And nice to see you again also. Mr. Siren's gonna want to see these three right away. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com 